Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. It's 4 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views and culture for Wednesday, March 8th, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. In honor of International Women's Day, today Maine Currents brings you to Our Rights at Risk, Why the Courts Matter, a discussion featuring panelists from Mabel Wadsworth Center, Maine Women's Lobby, and Spruce Run Women Care Alliance. It was held in Bangor last week. Abby Strout recorded the event. My name is Andrea Irwin. I'm executive director of Mabel Wadsworth Center. And we are located here in Bangor. We're the only independent feminist, not-for-profit health center in Maine and one of just a handful across the country. And we provide a host of sexual and reproductive health services, including pregnancy care um, across the spectrum. So from abortion care to prenatal care, we also offer well-woman care, birth control, We recently began offering um, STI testing and treatment for people of all genders. So while we've always served women, we we now are serving people of all genders with that particular service. And we also offer hormone therapy for transgender folks and do a lot with cancer screenings and other well-woman care. Uh, We also have a commitment to advocating for women's health and rights, which is why we are moved to put on this program today with the Maine Women's Lobby. So we're going to um, have a bit of a panel program today. I'll do uh, an introduction of our two speakers, and then they will each provide an overview of uh, part of the topics that we're focusing on today. First, we have Eliza Townsend, and Eliza is the executive director of the Maine Women's Lobby, which is a statewide organization that advocates for women um, on the issues affecting their lives, ranging from freedom from violence, freedom from discrimination, ensuring that they have access to health care and real economic security. And Eliza joined the lobby in 2011. She previously represented part of Portland in the Maine House of Representatives for eight years and then moved into the nonprofit sector. She became the first executive director of the Maine League of Conservation Voters and Maine Conservation Voters Education Fund. During her tenure, They convened the Environmental Priorities Coalition, comprising two dozen diverse groups that agree to and advocate for a common legislative agenda. And she left the conservation voters when she joined the Maine Department of Conservation, where she served first as Deputy Commissioner and later Commissioner. And she was named one of Maine Magazine's 50 Mainers charting the state's future in 2016. (laughs) So I'm also pleased to welcome Nicole Golden Bouchard. She's an attorney and she works here in Bangor at Spruce Run Women Care Alliance, which as some of you may know is the third uh, longest running, longest serving domestic violence project in the United States. And we have um, some people here that have been involved with that program, including Ann Schoenberger, who's one of the founders. Just want to recognize Ann being here today. <laughs> So Nikki is doing a really interesting legal fellowship at Spruce Run Women Care Alliance where she leads a project that outreaches and provides pro bono legal representation to LGBTQ plus survivors of domestic violence. 
In addition to her outreach and legal efforts, she also meets with nonprofit organizations, healthcare providers, and other domestic violence resource centers from around the state to discuss domestic violence within the LGBTQ community. In the past, her work has also included extensive research on topics such as care for repeat victims of violent crimes and the intersection between domestic violence and child protective services. She earned her bachelor's degree from the University of Maine, summa cum laude, and received her law degree from the University of California, Berkeley School of Law, with a concentration in public interest law. She's also a Truman Scholar, an active member of Phi Beta Kappa, an avid baseball fan, and a lover of all things shiny. <laughs> so welcome again to both of our panelists. Thank you everyone for joining us. And we're going to dive right in um, with Eliza to talk a little bit about the importance of the courts in our lives, how these issues impact women and girls, and on Judge Gorsuch's record in particular. Okay. So my first uh, topic I'd like to touch on is why this matters. Uh, decisions made by the Supreme Court affect women's daily lives. They affect everyone's daily lives. But whether striking down discrimination, as the court did in Windsor versus the United States and Obergefell versus Hodges, or upholding access to health care, as the court did in the National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sebelius, which decided that the Affordable Care Act was, in fact, constitutional, or again, as it did in King versus Burwell, and most recently in Whole Women's Health versus Texas, uh, or in making decisions that undermine an, a woman's ability to earn a living and support herself and her family, as the court did in the case of Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire, and uh, again in turning down and refusing to hear Dukes versus Walmart, actions of the Supreme Court have a powerful and broad impact on the lives of women. It matters tremendously who serves on our federal courts as a federal judge. Appointments to the federal bench are lifetime appointments. That's a really important thing to keep in mind. So how did we get to where we are today? You may remember that just about a year ago, we were all shocked when Justice Antonin Scalia died unexpectedly. Within an hour of the announcement of his death, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell stated his categorical rejection of any replacement put forward by President Obama. As we know, it was uh, nearly a full year to go in the president's term. He was legally uh, required <laughs> to put forward a justice. It was the job of the U.S. Senate to advise and consent. They simply refused to do so. Uh, on March 16th, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland, who is the chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, to hold to fill the vacant seat. And Senator McConnell and the majority in the U.S. Senate simply declined to hold hearings or to consider Judge Garland's nomination in any way. Twelve days after his inauguration, President Donald J. Trump nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch to the vacant Supreme Court seat. His public hearing has been scheduled for March 20th. We at the Maine Women's Lobby are deeply concerned about Judge Gorsuch for a number of reasons. And the first, which um, really rises to the top for me and has enormous ramifications, was his position in the case of Hobby Lobby versus Burwell. You have a Hobby Lobby here in Bangor. You know it's a craft store like Michael's or A.J. Moore. It's a privately held corporation um, owned by a family. Um, and what they claimed 
Andrea will step in and correct me if I'm <laughs> mischaracterizing this, was that under the uh, freedom from the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that they, for the purposes of compliance with the Affordable Care Act, were a, an individual, a person, with religious beliefs, and therefore did not have to comply with the uh, section of the law which requires employers to ensure that their employees, through the Affordable Care Act, have access to contraception. And the issue was that there are certain types of contraception of which they did not approve. Um, so that case went to the Tenth Circuit District Court, where Justice Gorsuch currently serves, and then on to the Supreme Court. And both courts upheld the position of Hobby Lobby, that this retail store which sells craft items could claim a religious exemption from having to comply with the laws that everybody else has to comply with. Um, and further, not only does this mean that your boss gets to help determine what kind of birth control you have access to, which I think is creepy, <laughs> um, it's already been invoked to discriminate, against, to discriminate against people who are LGBTQ, to justify noncompliance with child labor laws, and has even been invoked to justify noncompliance with anti-kidnapping laws. So there are wider ramifications to this case. It's not a case strictly about what type, types of birth control you might have access to, but it's the precedent that a privately held corporation, not the Sisters of Mercy, not a hospital, not uh, a religiously affiliated organization in any way, can claim a religious exemption from the law. Equally disturbing is the fact that Judge Gorsuch would have gone further than the majority in either of the, either court to allow that individual owner, not the corporation, but the individual person, to say, I personally am exempt from that law because it conflicts with my religion. Tell me where this ends. On a related topic, Gorsuch wrote a column for the National Review Online in 2005 titled, Liberals and Lawsuits. <laughs> in which he scornfully dismissed what he described as the overweening addiction to the courtroom as the place to debate social policy. He said it's bad for the country and bad for the judiciary. I'd like to know where people who are members of a minority population should seek their rights. He felt that they should win elections. Um, in particular, he wrote especially angrily and dismissively about lawsuits which were seeking marriage equality and argued that the minority should pursue their rights through the electoral and legislative process. I think that's not enough. <laughs> I think that people should use whatever tools are at hand, uh, especially if you are a member of a minority. Um, it, it, by definition, asking members of the my, my majority to determine your rights is a very challenging circumstance. Now, with the, with the light of hindsight, we can see that brilliantly, People like Mary Bonato and all her allies changed hearts and minds, and they, you know, it's it's very clear that the opinion of the American public did change between 2005 and today, um, and that led to the changes in laws across the country, and they began to fall like dominoes. And so, by the time the Supreme Court ruled, there are many people who felt that it was just catching up to public opinion. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I, I I still believe that. Uh, 
that Neil Gorsuch was wrong in dismissing people's use of their constitutional rights to seek out um, equal protection under the law. So consistent with this view, Gorsuch is an originalist, which means that he's an adherent to a view that the Constitution is enduring and it's a literal document and we should interpret it literally to mean exactly what the, the framers wrote in 1787. And this view simply does not take into account changes in our society. Think of, think of all the ways that the world has changed in the last 230 years. Um, and certainly technology is an enormous part of that, but we've had, as you recall, uh, African-Americans, slaves were described as three-fifths of a human being in the Constitution. Thankfully, we are no longer literalists in that regard. When the Constitution was created, women ha did not have the right to vote. Thankfully, that has changed. So I'm not an originalist, originalist and I, I'm, I find that a very worrisome, troubling point of view. Um, so there are two organizations, the, both the Alliance for Justice and People for the American Way, who have analyzed Gorsuch's record and written comprehensive reports on it. And those reports are posted online, so I would encourage you to, uh, to go to those if you're looking for the, the full picture. I've focused in just on, narrowly, on the pieces that particularly resonate with me and that speak to the issues that our organization works on. But they can be found at afj.org and at pfaw.org. But I want to say that the Supreme Court is, of course, just the tip of the iceberg. It's the, uh, the final step in the, of the court process. And there are issues across the federal court system. The Senate majority not only successfully blocked Merrick Garland, but a total of 54 judicial nominees put forward by President Obama, with the result that there are today across the country 114 vacant federal positions um, in both the, the district courts, the circuit courts, and the one position on the Supreme Court. And in certain parts of the country, though th that has resulted in caseloads so high for judges as to be categorized as a judicial emergency. That's a, that's a technical term for the, the number of cases that they are wrestling with. And the on-the-ground result is that American people are not getting their day in court. They're not getting access to justice. Uh, the old saying goes, justice delayed is justice denied. And so that is happening. Um, it amounts to a 14% vacancy rate on the federal courts, and it means that President Trump may name more judges than any president since the 1950s. Today's vacancies are not the full picture, however. The average age of retirement on the Supreme Court has been 79. Justice Ginsburg is 83. Justice Kennedy is 80. Justice Breyer is 78. And meanwhile, there are 14 future vacancies across the system. One of those is right here in Maine, uh, where one of our three federal judges, Judge John Woodcock, has announced his intent to move to senior status effective next summer. And that creates a vacancy. And it means that uh, by practice, the senior member of the congressional delegation who belongs to the same party as the president uh, reviews candidates and makes a recommendation to the president. So by practice, Senator Collins will ultimately be recommending a nominee to President Trump. Um, that our process is an arcane one. 
kind of held closely to the vest, it's not at all clear what the opportunities are for members of the public or for organizations to have input. But it's also clearly essential that our federal judges have the qualification and temperament to serve. It's equally important that the federal courts be made up of Americans with a wide variety of personal and professional backgrounds. Um, it was hard not to notice that of those 54 nominees put forward by President Obama, whose nomination was allowed to expire, uh, there were a high percentage of women, of people of color, of people who were gay and lesbian, people who would have been breaking barriers um, uh, by serving as federal judges. Justice Sonia Sotomayor made this point very clearly when in her blistering dissent to the majority ruling in Utah versus Streif, when the court ruled that evidence found during an unlawful police stop could be used in court. She wrote, for generations, black and brown parents have given their children the talk, instructing them never to run down the street, always keep your hands where they can be seen, do not even think of talking back to a stranger, all out of fear of how an officer with a gun will react to them. That's clearly a personal perspective brought forward by her own personal set of experience. And it's really vital that we have a wide variety of people serving in our federal courts in order that the most fair decisions can be made because, like our legislative bodies, they impact the lives of all Americans. So I'll stop there and turn Great. it. Thank you. That was Eliza Townsend, executive director of the Maine Women's Lobby. She was the first of the panelists to speak at a discussion held in Bangor last week called Our Rights at Risk, Why the Courts Matter. Next up is Nicole Golden-Bouchard, an attorney with Spruce Run Women Care Alliance. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. We'll hear from Nikki now. She'll talk about the impact of this nomination on the LGBTQ plus and domestic violence uh, communities of survivors and also give us a little bit more background on the federal courts and how they impact our everyday lives. So uh, I'm going to start off with kind of a civics 101. Uh, I'll try and be as entertaining as Schoolhouse Rock, but I'm not, <laughs> not going to sing. So, um, so we have three branches of government. We have the executive branch, which is the president and his cabinet. Then we have the legislative branch, which is the is Congress, so the House of Representatives and the Senate. And then we have the judicial branch. And the judicial branch, uh, their main goal their main purpose is to ensure that the laws that are passed by the executive and the legislative branches are constitutional and fall within our constitution. There are three levels of federal courts. There's the district court, the federal district court, which is the trial courts. Um, you have then a court of appeals. There's 13 circuits, they're called. Um, and so if a party doesn't like the results of their trial, they can appeal then to the circuit court that represents their district, uh, federal district court. And then if they don't like that results, they have the opportunity to petition for certiorari or cert uh, to the Supreme Court. Now, there are thousands of court cases that are petitioned to the court, and usually there's about 80 in a term. So it's rare and it's hard to get your case before the Supreme Court. Uh, they're a, a court of limited jurisdiction, which means that there has to be some things met before they can hear your case. So usually they hear cases uh, that uh, deal with laws that are claimed to be unconstitutional, or 
if there is a disagreement between the circuits. So in marriage equality, there were some circuits that said, yes, uh, it's unconstitutional to prohibit or bar same-sex couples from being married, where other circuits said it should be up to the states. It doesn't really, um, it's not really addressed in our constitution. We don't need to go forward. So those are the types of cases that the Supreme Court uh, will hear. So uh, how is it that it works in Maine? Uh, a good illustration is a case called Voisin v. Uh, U.S. It's about two men who were convicted of domestic violence. Uh, it was a misdemeanor in, this, in, uh, in the federal courts. Um, but there is, and typically, uh, you're not barred from owning a firearm uh, unless you have been convicted of a felony. But there is a, an act, the Violence Against Women's Act, that allows or, or uh, mandates that if you're convicted of domestic violence, then you are barred from possessing or owning a, a firearm. These men took issue with that, stated that, uh, or believed that it was an infringement on their Second Amendment right to bear arms, and thus went to the, to the federal level to challenge that they lost in the first district, which is, uh, Maine is all one district, excuse me. So the federal district of Maine, they lost there. They took it to the first circuit, uh, which covers Maine, New Hampshire, Puerto Rico, Massachusetts, <laughs> and oddly Rhode Island. So, um, so they, they took it to the court of appeals, the, the first circuit, where they lost as well. So then they filed for cert, uh, and were actually um, able to go before the Supreme Court where they eventually lost as well. But it gives you an idea of the process that you have to go through. Um, so uh, the, the Supreme Court uh, has a term. It usually st it starts the first Monday of October. Uh, so the term has started with eight justices because we uh, have not filled the seat as of yet. But as we all know, Judge Gorsuch has been nominated by, by President Trump. So who is Judge Gorsuch? Other than having an incredibly challenging name, apparently. <laughs> so he, he graduated from Harvard Law. He actually was a classmate of President Obama. His bachelor's degree is from Columbia. He has a PhD from Oxford, so he's highly, uh, highly educated. Uh, he was raised Catholic. He now attends an Episcopalian church, uh, and by all accounts, they claim to be largely a, a liberal, uh, largely liberal church. Uh, like Scalia and like Eliza said, he's, he claims to be an originalist, a textualist. Um, he's clerked for two justices. He clerked for Justice Kennedy, who is now the swing vote and has been the swing vote uh, or is seen as the swing vote uh, for this court. Uh, he also clerked for uh, Justice Byron White, who was nominated by JFK um, and is also fairly moderate. Uh, he, ha he believes although he has a conservative leaning, he um, believes in affirmative action. However, he only believes in affirmative action in public institutions, not private institutions. Uh, and he was the dissent in Roe v. Wade. Um, Judge Gorsuch was nominated by George W. Bush to the Tenth Circuit. 
and is now obviously uh, nominated by President Trump for the Supreme Court. So now that we've got all that great stuff out of the way, <laughs> I really want to talk about how this nomination and how the Supreme Court would affect specifically LGBTQ plus folks and the community. And I can do that first by saying, it kind of naming off some cases that were decided by the Supreme Court and that actually gave rights and, and really pushed along the uh, equality movement, the LGBTQ movement. Uh, there's Romer versus Evans, which was in 1996, and that stopped states um, from forbidding non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ plus people. So before that, that case arose, states could make it, uh, not illegal, but could make it so that LGBTQ individuals could not be brought up to be included in non-discrimination codes. Uh, we have Lawrence v. Texas, which was in 2003, so not that long ago, uh, which invalidated laws criminalizing same-sex relationships. Uh, United States v. Windsor, which required federal recognition of same-sex, so it uh, stated that Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional, and it allowed for, for federal purposes, uh, same-sex couples uh, who were married in states that allowed it uh, to be included in health insurance benefits, uh, to be included in Social Security survivors' benefits, uh, immigration purposes, bankruptcy purposes, uh, really allowed uh, same-sex couples to be included in, in a lot of the benefits that uh, heterosexual couples had. And then we have Obergefell uh, v. Hodges, which brought about uh, nationwide marriage equality. So the Supreme Court has been very instrumental in gaining rights for the LGBTQ plus community. So how would Judge Gorsuch apply his, his own uh, beliefs in these areas? Well, that's hard to say, to be perfectly honest. It's really hard to say because uh, his record is, is fairly thin when you're talking about case law. But I think we can fairly predict what he's going to say and what his future rulings will be given some relevant cases and given some of his statements. Uh, Eliza touched upon the Hobby Lobby case uh, that was at the Tenth Circuit where he was at. Um, he, again, went broader than even what the Supreme Court majority uh, in his own court's majority was saying where he believed that individuals have the right to uh, abstain from, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of exactly what he said. He said uh, it, that uh, the government should not force anyone to be complicit in conduct the religion teaches them to be gravely wrong. And that, although for some believed to be true, it spans a very wide Birth. It's no, we're not talking about just performing weddings, if you will. <laughs> we're talking about services. If someone doesn't want uh, uh, a same-sex couple to eat in their restaurant, is that being complicit in their relationship? I mean, it can it can span quite far. Uh, in addition, there was Little Sisters of the Poor versus Burrell, which uh, Little Sisters of the Poor is a Roman Catholic organization that. Um, assist the elderly. They're, they're large. They're in 31 countries. Um, they have about 2,300 members. 
And in that particular case, they were exempt, essentially, from having to pay for contraceptive, um, co contraception for their employees. But they said that nonetheless, they would have to offer this insurance that may include it. And so they were passively uh, uh, being complicit, if you will. Uh, Judge Gorsuch joined in the dissent and said that they should be, in fact, allowed to discriminate even passively. Um, and again, went far in the religious, religious freedom and that uh, he believed that the majority didn't take their religious beliefs uh, into account enough. And then we have unpublished cases. So unpublished cases are, are cases nonetheless, they just aren't necessarily as um, touted as, as the, the larger cases are. And there's Drulli v. Patton, which ruled against a trans woman um, who was in prison. Uh, she sought to have hormone therapy, to continue hormone therapy, and also reassignment from the all-male prison that she was housed in. He refused, um, as did the majority. To that, saying that it wasn't cruel and unusual punishment, she did not need the hormones and uh, could live safely in the walls of an all-male prison. And then we have Castle v. Maricopa County Community College District. Um, Gorsuch was sitting by designation with the Ninth Circuit. So it wasn't his typical circuit, but he was sitting on it. Um, and the finding in that case was that transgender individuals can state a claim under Title VII for sex discrimination uh, via gender stereotyping. So he did agree that they shouldn't, that, that transgender individuals should not be uh, discriminated against on gender stereotyping. However, the case really uh, discussed the use of bathrooms, which is really uh, poignant right now. <clears throat> and he stated, he, with the majority, stated that uh, an employer can ban a person from using the bathroom of their gender identity until complete gender confirmation surgery. Now, that's not defined in, uh, it's not defined in, in, in the ruling, um, but the one thing that is, is very poignant is that it states that bathroom safety is, is a non-discriminatory reason for employers to make that decision. So it heightens and emboldens the idea of transgender individuals being in danger uh, when they use a restroom of their gender identity, which is very poignant given the Gavin Grimm's case. So the Gavin Grimm's case, if, if, if uh, you're not familiar with it, is a case that's actually going to be argued on March 28th of this year in front of the court, uh, the Supreme Court. And it's a, a, about a transgender male student who is now a senior. Uh, the case began, as I mentioned in that whole long process, began when uh, Gavin was a sophomore. Gavin uh, legally changed his name, uh, he, by all, he has an ID card. He changed his birth certificate. Um, by all accounts, he is a male. And when I say by all accounts, I mean legally. By all accounts, he is a man. Um, and he looks like any other teenage boy. Uh, when he first came out to the school board, to the school as transgender, he did request that he uh, use the nurse's bathrooms. 
but shortly thereafter, he realized how stigmatized that made him felt and how isolated that made him feel. And so requested to use the men's bathroom in the men's locker room, as he did everywhere else in every other public forum, without any uh, regard from anybody else. The school board agreed, the principal agreed, uh, but there were some opposition on the school board, and the school board members that were in opposition actually leaked to the community that this was going on. The community had uh, adults that didn't even have children in the schools, uh, raised protest to the fact that he was allowed to use the men's restroom and the men's uh, locker room. The board thus decided, well, we're just going to make a private bathroom for students and the and transgender students can use that bathroom and it's a private stall and there won't be any issues. Well, the issue is, is that the only students that use these bathrooms are the transgender students um, beyond all, a lot of other issues. But uh, really uh, solidifying the stigma and the isolation of Gavin. Um, so they, they, they took it to the federal court. The district court actually sided with the school board. And the Fourth Circuit overturned it. So now it's going to be heard, uh, as I said, in the Supreme Court on March 28th. Uh, so these cases are still ongoing. They're still pertinent. And uh, when you have a, a justice who's already uh, ruled or a potential justice who's already ruled against uh, the transgender community, it's something that we take very seriously and it's something of alarm. Um, so again, just to reiterate how this affects the LGBTQ community and how we can take those cases that we have heard uh, his rulings on and apply. The fact of the matter is, is that He's making rulings against transgender individuals. He's making rulings that go far beyond even the majority of, um, on religious freedom uh, that allow for discrimination and would allow for discrimination, not only by businesses, but by individuals. Um, and this goes to not just contraception, but it also goes to maybe the hormones of an employee. Uh, transgender employee um, using bathrooms um, again eating in restaurants uh, sleeping in hotels uh, all of these things uh, could be wrapped into such uh, a nomination and such a confirmation and I just want to briefly also touch upon if I may I know I'm a little long no, um, about domestic violence and and in violent crimes what, however you feel about the Second Amendment and, and having and bearing arms, Gorsuch, uh, in his cases, including U.S. v. Pope and U.S. v. Gomez, has time and time again ruled in favor of not only uh, uh, individuals who are convicted of felonies to perhaps have weapons, um, but also that case that I mentioned, Voisin v. U.S., he actually, on his level, on the, on the circuit level, actually um, thought that, that they should have weapons. So even though, you know, it really does depend on what circuit you're going through and ultimately to the Supreme Court, 
but he has a different view. So he's even more um, conservative on the Second Amendment than even the Supreme Court, <laughs> even the Supreme Court right now. And so when we think about domestic violence and the Violence Against Women's Act and how that protects women uh, who have have been abused, quite frankly, um, in, in ways uh, that you can't describe, allowing their abusers to have access to weapons and knowing that their abusers could have access to weapons is, is really unparalleled. Um, it, it allows for the abuser to continue the abuse, maybe not physically, but by just saying, well, I'm going to get my guns back. Mm -hmm. That's all you have to say. I'm going to get my guns back. It's a deep concern for domestic violence survivors, and it's a deep concern for the LGBTQ plus community. Thanks. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. You're listening to a discussion called Our Rights at Risk, Why the Courts Matter, held in Bangor last week. The last speaker was Nicole Golden-Bouchard, an attorney with the Spruce Run Women Care Alliance. Prior to that, we heard from Eliza Townsend, the executive director of the Maine Women's Lobby. Andrea Irwin, the executive director of the Mabel Wadsworth Center, is the final panelist to speak. And then we'll wrap up with a few of the questions from the audience and their recommendations for taking action. I think it really helps to be reminded that a lot of these cases do impact individuals, just like all of us. Um, whether it's the trans woman in prison, or Gavin now going before the court this year, or the women working at Hobby Lobby. These, this is really about the rights of everyday Americans against corporations in many instances, or about um, government abuse of power and, and that balance. So I'm just going to take a couple of minutes to touch on the reproductive rights issues a little bit more in depth, because that is um, an issue that we care a lot about at Mabel Wadsworth Center. And to also just note that we really try to take an approach of reproductive justice towards um, these issues, and that is a term and a movement that was coined by an organization called Sister Song in the late 1990s. And it's a way to broaden the perspective around access to reproductive health care and rights so that it uh, encompasses and centers, really, the experiences of women of color, um, other vulnerable populations, LGBTQ plus people, um, people with disabilities, immigrant women, etc., and to ensure that we're not just uh, working to support and expand reproductive rights, but that we're actually trying to support women no matter what they choose, whether they choose to parent um, or to have an abortion. And if they choose to parent, that they can raise their children in a world that is free from violence, where they can have access to clean water and a safe place to live, and to really look at that broader perspective. So in addition to what um, we've already heard about some of the issues that do impact women and women's health, uh, there's also a lot of concern from Judge Gorsuch's record around um, the issues of terror and the U United States response to terror, um, which I think are also really timely, really pertinent. So I just wanted to touch on those briefly. So he actually worked for um, Alberto Gonzalez, who is the Attorney General uh, during the Bush administration, who I have to say I'd forgotten all about because there's been so many horrible things that have happened. But he, you know, for that time, he was one of these people that were really bringing in um, some philosophies around terrorism and detention that 
were quite uh, horrible for human rights. So Judge Gorsuch actually worked under uh, Attorney General Gonzalez during the Bush administration. And to refresh your memories, Gonzalez was the person to help authorize the so-called torture memos, which were used to justify waterboarding and other criminal acts of torture that were employed in the name of, quote, national security. Um, And so he really, Gonzalez became the chief defender of George Bush's uh, real philosophy around that approach and the entire um, pursuit of holding people in Guantanamo Bay without um, due process and all of those issues that came up during that time. So given that we're now facing a president who is committed to preventing immigrants from having the same rights that they've enjoyed in the past and from uh, really increasing this supposed crackdown on enemies of the state and all of these issues that kind of bring up the things that happened in the Bush administration. Uh, I just want to add that I think it's really important that the senators ask questions about this aspect of Judge Gorsuch's record. Um, You know, does he support waterboarding and torture as, as appropriate in those instances? Um, because those are also really important issues to women right now. Um, We are very concerned about women that are um, either immigrants themselves or have family members that are immigrants that are subject to these potential abuses. So I just wanted to add that as another component of this man's record and what we really want to be concerned about. And then, of course, we're very concerned about access to abortion, and that's really what this... Um, what looking at his record on um, Hobby Lobby and other cases that impact women is about. And we know that President Trump did promise to appoint a justice that would overturn Roe v. Wade, and I think we have to believe him. He's been quite, um, he's followed through in a lot of his campaign promises so far, which we, you know, we didn't know if that would be the case, but he certainly has. And like Eliza and Nikki spoke to, uh, Judge Gorsuch's record is actually to the right of a lot of the members of the Supreme Court now. He's very conservative. He has a philosophy that is originalist and does not account for women's rights, civil rights, um, the rights of LGBTQ plus people, and those are all very concerning. Um, With Roe v. Wade in particular, it's the case that decided that that abortion should be legal in the U.S. in 1973. But it's also important to note that because of that, um, we, there are still lots of women that are not able to access abortion in the United States. So overturning Roe v. Wade would be horrible, but even prior to that, um, laws and policies that actually prevent women from accessing abortion in a meaningful way, that's happening right now, and that's a huge concern. Um, fortunately, we had a major victory this past year in a case called Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt, and that was the case where the court struck down some horrible Texas sham laws that purported to be about women's health and safety, but were really just intended to close the clinics in Texas. And in fact, the way the law was written closed more than half of the clinics and created just huge burdens on women's ability to access abortion. It had an impact, a negative impact on women of color, immigrant women, young women, women with low income, again, the most vulnerable communities in that state. So that was a huge victory to win in Whole Women's Health, but there are still efforts being made at the state level to uh, create additional restrictions that prevent women from accessing the health care that they need. For example, um, it's still legal for parental notification in some states. There's still waiting periods in some states so that the state actually thinks that they know better than a woman of whether or not she should be able to get an abortion and that 
They are telling her that she needs to take time to think about it, essentially, which in our experience is just not the case. Most women that come to us are very confident in their decision. And if they're not, we give them the time and space they need to make their decision. But we don't need uh, politicians imposing that on them or on us as providers. So one of the things I wanted to mention was when we're looking at Supreme Court nominations, as Nikki said, um, it can be kind of challenging to really decide or to determine where a nominee might fall in particular issues. I actually think we have a fairly strong record with Judge Gorsuch um, because he has worked in a variety of different situations and on a number of cases that do raise some troubling issues. But I think it's really important now more than ever that we not normalize his nomination. Um, And this is particularly true when we're advocating and speaking with our senators here in Maine because they will play a major role in confirming his nomination. Um, So, for example... He will probably try to say that he's not able to opine about cases that could come before the court. But we do have the right to know what he would have, how he would have ruled in cases that have already become come before the court. So it's it would certainly be instructive to hear from him, and I think we have the right to hear from him as the people that will be impacted by by his work um, to know a little bit more about his record and his views of the Constitution and his views as to whether the Constitution is there to protect our rights. And as Eliza pointed out, he has already written about this sense that the liberals abuse the courts as a way for people to get access to their rights, which is just horrendous and and incorrect and inaccurate. Um, Some of the most Uh, important civil rights cases like Brown v. Board of Education, Roe v. Wade were decided in the courts because individuals were were in the minority and they took their cases to court to fight for their rights. So one example I just wanted to share before we get to Q&A was about Justice Sam Alito's confirmation. So he was uh, he was nominated by George Bush um, in 2005 I believe and he actually had a record of being um, on the case called Casey versus Planned Parenthood in Pennsylvania. And he would have uh, allowed um, a man, like basically the law said that there should be spousal consent so that a woman would have to get the, would have to notify her husband if she did seek to have an abortion. And so Judge Alito would have upheld that portion of the law. So to me, that's a very clear indicator that that is a judge who does not understand the realities of women's lives, the impact that abuse can have on women's lives, particularly when they're seeking abortion care. And then our senators went on to confirm him and said that, well, and I will will quote Senator Collins in particular, because at the time she said, well, he told me that he will uphold the precedent of Roe v. Wade. And that's why she voted for him. Well, this past spring in 2016, when Whole Woman's Health came, he voted against the women of Texas, and he voted for the law that would have closed more than half the clinics. So I guess my point is, when people tell you what they believe, we should believe them, (laughs) particularly with respect to Judge Gorsuch. This, this decision, this nomination, this person having a lifetime appointment will have a significant impact on our everyday lives, potentially for decades to come, for generations to come. So we're ready for questions. Yes. Sure. So for the, you're talking about the religious freedom law, a yeah. religious freedom law. So, so, yeah. Okay. So I've been asked to describe exactly what a religious freedom law is. They vary. 
as to the, the broad range of them. But it's essentially what we were talking, what I was talking about, which is based on the religion, uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that individuals, uh, the belief is that the individuals have a right to uh, not be complicit in uh, actions that they deem are contrary to their religion or are understood to be gravely wrong is a, is a term that's used oftentimes. And it allows a, an individual or a business to opt out of service or a recognition of an, a particular individual. So when you're talking about the LGBTQ plus uh, community, we can you talk about uh, religious, uh, excuse me, marriage equality. So it would allow businesses not to bake a cake or um, for restaurants potentially not to serve uh, an individual, like a, a group of individuals, um, or hotels. Uh, hotels are a really great uh, example, and I use that example because they're, if an individual is going across country, they don't know uh, if you're going through a state like Arizona, potentially was, they, they, they didn't pass it. In fact, the governor vetoed it. Um, but if that had gone through because it had passed the legislature, um, if an individual was driving through Arizona, one might not be sure if you're an LGBTQ plus individual self-identified, you might not be sure where you can stay. You could walk in and if you appeared, and I, I say that in quotes, uh, to be LGBTQ, then they could refuse you a room. And uh, this is not un unheard of in our country, that um, there were actually almanacs and maps for uh, the black community uh, back before the civil rights as to like what, what routes were safe uh, from harassment from police or what hotel they could stay at um, or where safe places to eat. And so it's not unheard of in our country. And uh, as a member of the LGBTQ community, it's something that, um, that I think about, I travel. Um, and so I, I, I think that uh, I, I concur with, with the, the fact that these things are happening. Um, these laws are being instituted. I, I, you know, we, ha we continue to have justices on the bench who affirm these types of laws. Uh, it will embolden, in my opinion, uh, and this is my own personal opinion, it will embolden state legislatures, which, again, nonpartisan, embolden state legislatures to, to put forth these, these laws and then affirm them by the highest court. So... Oh, that's a great question and a good segue into our closing discussion around taking action. The question was about what we can do to take action and what other interest groups that have cons have similar concerns about this nominee are doing. So I'm going to turn that to you, Eliza. <laughs> well, the short answer to both your question about how to address uh, what you see as the encroachment of religion on public life um, and to yours about the, this immediate uh, nominee is we need to engage in democracy. Mm. We need to speak up. We need to speak to our friends and neighbors so that they we're sharing information. We need to get informed. Um, I think it's, you know, the challenge in this uh, particular moment is how do you monitor everything you care about? It, it's almost not possible. So my advice to everyone I know is find the thing around which you have the most passion and dig a little deeper. 
um, whether it is domestic violence, LGBTQ issues, uh, women's issues, access to health care, clean elections, whatever it is, dig, dig, dig deeply, get informed, talk to other people about it, and then take actions. Communicate with your elected officials because they need to know how their constituents feel. You can call your senators, of course. The key there is to call, be short and sweet, be polite, identify <laughs> yourself, make it clear that you're a Mainer, and, um, and, and stick to really, if you can, one message. Mm. Um, and keep trying. And keep trying if, the, if you're having... And of course, there's nothing wrong with showing up in person to, um, to their offices. Another um, strategy that I think is really valuable is to write a letter to your newspaper, even in this day and age. Uh, maybe people don't read them in, in paper anymore, but they read them online. And that does two things. It shares information with your friends, neighbors... Um, and, and other members of your community, and you can bet that the staff of our elected representatives read the, read the newspapers and, and follow the letters to the editor. So getting information out. If you're moved, write an, an, uh, an op-ed column. What's the best chance of having a letter to the editor published? So again, kind of the same rules. Keep it narrowly focused. Don't talk about everything that is on your mind. Zero in on an on one issue at a time. Keep it short and to the point. You know, a, a good punchy letter. You know, in terms of trying to change hearts and minds on any issue, whether it's members of the public or or our elected representatives, the first step is realizing that this is in fact an issue that that affects real people in our community. So the more you can personalize it and give it examples, the better. Mm -hmm. um, both of us have social media presence. Many of the allied organizations with whom we work have social media <laughs> presence. That's a great way to stay informed. Mm -hmm. Probably your organization yeah. also. So get you know sign up for social media. And um, it's a good way to know what's current. Uh, Develop messaging that you can use in, in talking to your friends and family and neighbors or in your letters to the editor or in, and uh, it, I can't speak for yours, but we try to limit our calls to action. We won't bug you every, you know, every day. But when we do let you know that something needs to happen, that's because we really need yeah. that communication to happen. And we'll give you the tools with which to uh, communicate. And, and I guess I already mentioned this, but talking to your friends and neighbors and mm. um, expressing, and, and so we all have an obligation to reach out beyond our comfort zone and not just the people we talk to on a daily basis, but to um, speak mm -hmm. up. It matters. Yeah. I, I think the second part of your question, Elizabeth, was about allies. So we, uh, are, we uh, my organization has been working for a while, as you know, to try to bring attention to the issue of the federal courts um, because the conservative political uh, movement got that a long time ago. And um, as we've identified, these are lifetime appointments. So uh, someone who is appointed to any of these positions has the opportunity to shape American life for decades to come, not just on the Supreme Court, but on any of the courts. Um, we have formed a, a sort of a nascent coalition called the Courts Matter to Me, and that uh, Mabel is a member. Um, Maine Family Planning, Planned Parenthood, Sierra Club Maine, Maine Conservation Voters, 
Equality um, Maine. Equality Maine. And there may be others. Um, so uh, this is, you know, clearly going to be an ongoing need to um, educate ourselves uh, about and, and not hesitate. I think uh, I'm the non-attorney at this table. It can be really intimidating and think, oh, well, I'm not qualified. I'd better not talk about the law. This isn't, I'd never, I didn't go to law school. But we'd all have the right to speak up mm-hmm. and say, hey, it matters who makes public decisions that affect Americans' daily lives. Um, so that's where we're uh, working to coordinate with those folks as much as possible. I've been fascinated to watch, for instance, the debate that's taking place about the Affordable Care Act. Um, that was clearly a stated agenda of Donald Trump was to repeal and replace also Paul Ryan, also uh, Senator McConnell, others. But we're seeing Americans across the country speak up. Mm-hmm. and say, I really need health care. I value my health care. Don't take it away. And we're seeing our elected representatives put on the brakes. Mm-hmm. So um, it's possible, it seems to me, to um, express, our, express our point of view and shape the outcome. Mm-hmm. Should we end on that very positive <laughs> note? <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. That was Andrea Irwin, the executive director of Mabel Wadsworth Center, Eliza Townsend, executive director of the Maine Women's Lobby, and Nicole Golden Bouchard, an attorney with Spruce Run Women Care Alliance, speaking last week in Bangor at an event called Our Rights at Risk, Why the Courts Matter. Abby Strout recorded the event. Abby is the host of Reproductive Left here at w- here on WERU that's produced in conjunction with the Mabel Wadsworth Center. Be sure to catch that on the first Tuesday of each month at 4.30. And I'm Amy Brown. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. You can catch us every Wednesday afternoon at 4 o'clock, only here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill. Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. And thanks again to all of you who showed your generous support last week during our pledge drive. Stay tuned for Democracy Now!, which is coming up next, and then jazz straight ahead. And as always, an edit great music here on your community radio station.